Jennison, founder of Leaders by Nature and author of the book Leading Through Uncertainty. And this is series four of the Leading Through Uncertainty podcast. And in this series, it's coming live at the time of the coronavirus global pandemic and the UK is currently on lockdown. So in the coming weeks, I will be sharing my insights into the uncertainty that we're facing the experiences that my clients and colleagues are talking about, and I'll also be interviewing leaders in business on the various experiences that they've got. And my goodness, are we all having our own version of the same experience with different outcomes and different responses to it? So stay tuned and you'll find out more in the coming weeks. This week, I'm talking to Gary Honey, who runs a business called Chiron, a risk and resilience company specialising in uncertainty. I was excited to speak to him as he approaches uncertainty in a different yet compatible way to me. Gary works with boards of organisations on managing the uncertainty of risk and talks about the importance of treating risk management as part of strategy rather than compliance. Have a listen. Hi, Gary. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, thank you for inviting me. Um, I'm really excited to interview you, actually, because I know that we share we share the same love of the uh, the topic uncertainty, and I know you're an expert in a different way. So, um, for the for the benefit of the listeners, can you tell us who you are and what you do, and then we'll kind of delve into it. Sure. Uh, my name's Gary Honey. I run a uh, small training consultancy called Chiron. Uh, C-H-I-R-O-N, uh, Chiron Risk. Um, you could call me a risk consultant, um, but uh, I do a lot of other things. Uh, the way I've come to the subject is through governance, risk and compliance, um, a rather dull side. Um, and I'm much more interested in how, how risk people uh, do their job. And uh, I try and work with boards uh, to help them um, deal with risk in a much more uh, esoteric way than the functional control job of a lot of risk managers. Yeah, because I think, you know, risk, risk has um, raised its profile, I think, in the last sort of decade, at least, and probably two decades, at least. But it tends to sit under compliance, doesn't it? You know, in terms of, well, as long as you've ticked a box and thought about the risk, um, well, then it's all OK because we're managing it. But, you know, we're... we're we're doing this at the time of the um, the lockdown with the global coronavirus pandemic, and you know nobody could have foreseen this. I'm guessing it wasn't on on many of the compliance checklists, and if it was, it you know it probably wasn't really well thought through, and and it might have been in some cases, but probably not in many. So, you know, what's what's your view on risk and compliance? My my view is is that um, risk has certainly come up the agendas from from 1992 when the uh, first corporate governance code came out right the way through to 2008 with the financial crash and a much more focus on, on, on certainly large corporations having to talk about risk. Uh, risk has been there. Um, it's only been a concept in, in business from about the 50s. Um, but of course, risk as, as a, an insurance concept been around since the 16th and 15th centuries, um, where the word comes from riskiari, from, it means to dare. And of course, it was the uh, Portuguese and the Genoan explorers who set off into the new world who wanted to cover the cost of losing their cargoes or their ships. Um, and uh, they got them insured, or, or at least uh, hedged. Um, and that's where risk came from. 
Um, so it's been around for about 400 years as a concept. It's only been applied in business for the last 40 or 50. But certainly in the last 10 to 20, it's gone up the, the corporate agenda. Uh, the, the thing I will say that I think is important is that it is, it is a future outcome, uh, much like strategy. Um, and I think uh, rather like twins getting separated at birth, uh, it's been fallen into the compliance basket, um, which is a shame because it is a future factor. And like strategy, it's an estimate of a future um, situation. And what I always say to people is strategy is future direction um, and risk is future uncertainty. And they, they are bedfellows and they ought to be treated as bedfellows. Uh, so that's my take on it. Yeah. And, you know, I'd never thought of it like that before because I, you know, I, I used to work for IBM and, and we did risk and compliance and we probably did it. And, and, and to be fair to IBM, you know, I left over 10 years ago now. So I know that things will have moved on in the, in the last 10 years, but probably like a lot of corporates, it, it did sit with compliance and, um, you know, and cybersecurity and things like that. And so it's really interesting to hear your take on, it's about managing uncertainty because I'd never really thought about risk like that. But of course, that's exactly what it is, isn't it? Well, the reason I um, have plough the furrow I do, uh, which is slightly different to yours, is that if I go into an organisation and I look at their risk register or their risk map or the way they, the risk department look at things, I usually find things not quite right. A lot of things that are written down as risks are actually uncertainties. And one of the things I try and do with an organization is, is separate out what they are risks from their uncertainties. And there was a chap um, called Knight in the 1920s uh, who developed this concept of Knightian uncertainty, which was, you know, if you can calculate the outcome of something, it's a risk. But if you can't do it, it's an uncertainty. And it's the separation of what is a risk and what is an uncertainty that businesses find so hard to do. Because the average risk register has about 70 or 80 things on it uh, and probably is filtered down to 12 to 15 top risks or key risks. But even so, an awful lot of those are things that they've thought about that they want to make somebody responsible for keeping an eye on. But some of them are not they're still a jumble. In most organizations I look at, there's a jumble of what is a genuine risk and what is an uncertainty. And it's this unpicking I, I quite enjoy doing for them. Mm. So why, why do you think it is that some organisations are good at the compliance side of risk management, but not quite so good at the managing uncertainty side of things? I, th- I think there are two, two ways of looking at this. The first is, is the fact that the, the regulations dictate what compliance is. So if the regulator asks for X, compliance is providing X. Uh, and if the regulator is audit based, which the uh, which they are by and large, um, then they are looking for financial certainties. Um, and it's very easy to give somebody a matrix of things that might be probable or likely or whatever and say, here's some certainties. Uh, the audit based or accountancy based or, or, or um, these kind of financial people who are very happy with what's happened in the past. And what's happening now less happy with things in the future because there's no right and wrong um, risk should be bundled with strategy as a future forecast as an estimate of because risk this is why i get so worried i think risk management and risk can, risk management is, is an oxymoron 
actually part of the philosophy I have, mm. because you can't manage the future. Yeah. And you, you the can only kind of prepare for it a little exactly. bit. Exactly. And, and the risk management discipline, which is well-meaning uh, in terms of governance, is predicated on the fact that you can control the future and you can't. So I, I'm a bit of a heretic in the risk management fraternity and um, I have to be very careful because it's one thing to talk about risk governance and another thing to talk about risk management. Uh, just for the benefit of listeners, um, risk governance is the role that boards play in setting risk appetite. Whereas risk management is taken to be a control function to maintain business continuity or prevent business interruption. Mm. So risk management is focused on what could go wrong or what could cause harm financially or physically. Uh, and how do we prevent that? So it's a contingency process. Yeah. And that's fairly straightforward. If you can, in, if you're in an organization and you've been in it several years and you can envisage the kind of things that will cause it to stop or, or close down, you know, airplanes oh dear have to you know can't fly anymore what do we do dust cloud over iceland or uh, virus over the world we can't fly anymore what do we do so you can think through what would interrupt our business in terms of uncertainty um it's there's no map there's there's no guidance um what companies i find don't like to do is say we are uncertain or we don't know Mm. Uh, and this is where it comes back into the, the psychology of leaders and boards wanting to appear confident because they feel they ought to. And they yeah. therefore manufacture certainty. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I've been, is... I've been talking about this for, for the last four weeks, really, because, I, you know, as you know, I've been running my leading through uncertainty masterclasses. And, you know, just just this morning, I had a masterclass with a with a group of um you know, partners and uh, and senior partners from different law firms, and you know, one of the one of the things that all of them were were saying was, you know, our, our teams are, and and I've had this conversation with lots of other sectors as well, but they've all been saying our teams are expecting us to have the answers, and they're asking us questions, and we don't have the answers, and and I've been saying, well, you can't have the answers because that's what happens in uncertainty, right? It's very nature we don't have the answers and you know that desire for certainty is so great isn't it in that you know we we poke and push and we and we're seeing this you know the media are pushing the government for answers where there aren't any yet because by its very nature we've never gone through a global pandemic like this before so we can't have the answers and yet the media are pushing for answers and there's a danger then that people fabricate answers that aren't true and aren't grounded in well, this, this I think, is, is, is the risk. Uh, this is a big part of leadership risk, is the fact you're sitting at the top of the pedestal and people are looking up to you and expecting you to lead. So the last thing you want to do as a leader is say, I don't know or I'm not certain. But actually, sometimes that's the right thing to say. Mm. What you then have to do is explain to your audience that uncertainty provides the opportunity to learn. And that's, it's an invitation to learn mm. and i think a lot of senior managers and leaders don't get into the learning mindset they feel they've learned enough and they ought to know enough so it's a failing so they yeah. don't want to appear to be failing 
So again, I'm, I'm not a cod psychologist, but I think it's important to understand why there's such a human urge to create certainty. I mean, I do it as a father with my daughter, you know, daddy's got to have the answer. Yeah. Um, and, and it is tricky because we, we do manufacture certainty because people expect us to do it. Um, webinar I was listening to only an hour ago said, you know, three responses to uncertainty. First, denial. Second, overconfidence. And third, analysis paralysis. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, the, the, we respond to uncertainty um, because we, it's a bit, we just don't know what to do with it, mm. but we feel we ought to. And I yeah, think and that's... Then on another level, we're actually really good at it because if you look at, you know, what's happened in, in, the, in the crisis of coronavirus, organisations have very quickly, as soon as the lockdown was announced, organisations have leveraged their IT, got everybody working from home, you know, created that remote working, rallied teams around, and there's some really brilliant work being done. Mm. You know, there are organisations um, that have pivoted from providing automotive parts to PPE for mm. and innovating new things for, for healthcare to support the NHS. There's some cracking work. And then in society, we're seeing communities come together as well. It's it's ironic, really, that we're so frightened of uncertainty, and yet we're absolutely brilliant when it comes to it. Well, I'm, I'm reminded of the quote, necessity is the mother of invention, mm. um, which is one I haven't used for years, but it just came to me listening to you there. Um, when it's necessary to stay at home and your business is based on communicating with people, uh, then you've got to adapt. And, and you appear to have done it very well. Uh, I haven't quite got on that path yet. But um, I think it's very important that uh, out of uncertainty comes the opportunity to be creative. Mm. And I was trawling the web for some of those charts. And there's a lot of quotes out there from various people, philosophers and Nobel Prize winners and goodness knows what. But this is a theme that it, uncertainty tends to be seen in business as a, as a sign of weakness. So we mustn't say it. Um, and in terms of domestic saying it's a case of oh dear no no you know I've, I've got I've, I'm in a figure of authority I've got to be confident but actually um, what I like to encourage boards to do uh, when I'm doing any work with them is say look there's no harm in saying we can't make this decision now we haven't got enough information because at the root of it and another set of stuff I've been looking at is uncertainty comes from lack of knowledge or, or if you like ignorance uh, there is a philosopher I've found some stuff on talks about domains of ignorance um, it sounds a bit uh, prejudicial to use the word ignorance but it's it's an absence of knowledge so what you're trying to do with in uncertainty is is identify where those gaps are and in a sense that's all I'm doing in the model mm -hmm. is saying okay you've got a gap in knowledge here and you want to fill it uh, you don't just want to chuck polyfiller in it or, or some instant grout you want to find out what the gap is what's the cause of the gap in knowledge and fill it with the right stuff mm -hmm. and look in the right place for it um so i attended it sort of almost like a diy thing <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> uncertainty and is it is it always possible to to fill those gaps because if i look at you know what's happening with today with the coronavirus we actually don't know when the lockdown is going to be lifted and and what that's going to look like and what the knock-on effect is. I mean, I'm guessing that we can do scenario planning and plan and prepare for, 
different scenarios, but we can't actually nail it down and say we can fill the gap because we actually don't know, do we? Well, that, that's that's you're right. I mean, part of uncertainty about the future is the fact that it is the future. Um, and anybody who claims to be able to look into it and be certain is is a bit deluded. Mm. Um, I think the important thing is is to be able to sit down and say, we can't control the future, we can't know the future, we can do some sensible thinking about alternative types of future, uh, and that's what scenario planning is. It's looking at four or five different types of future outcome. Um, and it's, and as I've seen a few more quotes this morning about um, being prepared and, you know, uh, yeah, I can't remember who they're by, but anyway, basically just if you do enough thinking about the future, you'll be better prepared. Again, with boards, I find that they're very focused on the next quarter because the shareholders expect it, the regulator expects it, and they're very focused on extrapolating short-term trends, either because they've got shorter-term horizons or whatever. And the longer term, the further you go out in the future, there's more uncertainty and you're more likely to be wrong. Um, so there's all sorts of reasons why organizations don't do five, 15, 20 year, 25 year planning. Um, because they're more likely to be wrong than right. So they don't do it. Um, and, and this is, comes back to another factor, which I'm sure you've come across in, in, in and so there's bravery. Um, and one of the things I, I talk about with, with organizations is, you know, you've got to be brave to say, listen, guys, we don't know. Mm. Now, in a way, when you listen to dear old Chris Whitty or somebody on TV, he's pretty good at saying that sort of thing because mm -hmm. he knows what he doesn't know. Yeah. Um, he doesn't Very say, oh, you, you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, and also I think that adds to his credibility because yeah. I trust him that when he says he doesn't know, he doesn't. And I also mm -hmm. trust that when he tells me something, he genuinely knows it. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And, and, and that again is, is all about, um, and I'm sure you've come across this in, in training individuals as leaders and, and you know, it's on the one hand, it's, it's about getting their, um, uh, vibrational emotion in tune with the horse or whatever it happens to be to be the horse to trust it and all that sort of thing but on the other hand it's it's about getting themselves um getting the audience to trust them mm. and and one of the things we try and do as as leaders or, or senior people is we want people to have confidence in us so we offer them certainties and politicians are very good at this mm. you only have to listen to someone like michael gove <laughs> If you take away his track record, he sounds very plausible. But when you look at his track record, you know, it's, it's, um, it is worrying that, that people do try to create certainty in order to build trust. When in fact, somebody like Whitty, as you rightly said, builds trust through being honest uh, and demonstrating integrity. It's really fascinating, isn't it? Because, it, you know, it's one of the conversations that I've repeatedly been having in the last four weeks with with leaders where they've said, um, you know, they've they've been anxious about the fact that they don't have the answers and they're worried about their credibility and worried that their teams won't trust them if they don't have the answers. And, you know, and the conversation that I've had with them is exactly this. It's, you know, if you're clear when when you do and you're clear when you don't, then that's how you build credibility. Mm. Yeah, but it's so difficult for people to say, I don't know, isn't it? Is that, 
that sense of do you think do you think some of that is because historically knowledge has been power and so if we know if we know things we're we're in power and we're seen to be credible whereas actually what we're moving more um, towards now is much more of an emergent style of leadership and an emergent world where things are evolving so rapidly none of us can know what the next technology is that's going to completely disrupt the market um, and so therefore we're having to be much more responsive and much more fluid and flexible in the way that we lead organizations I think you're right I mean two things two bullet points I put on one of those slides only yesterday was one is I think our education system has a lot to offer because when we're young we're, we're encouraged to be right uh, and the teacher will chastise somebody who's wrong or doesn't know um, and and there's an encouragement to, to, to demonstrate knowledge and and if the teacher asks the class you know you don't say I don't know mm. uh, I also remember working in an American corporation years ago and doing presentations frequently and one of my managers said to me it doesn't matter whether you're right or wrong just be positive and assertive mm. you know it doesn't matter if you're wrong mm just be positive just be and that sort of attitude is is it's macho culture i mean mm. that's probably another name for it but uh, mm. it is this idea of i must be assertive um mm. to show confidence um when in fact you should say actually we just don't know mm. the problem with the, i just don't know is it it, it gives uh, they used to call it the monkey on the back it gives it back to somebody else mm. um and they don't want that back they want you to say whether your brand is going to have x percent share in a few years time or you're going to do this or you're going to do that um, they want you to be certain there we, we seek certainty and people try to be liked almost uh, that's another whole area can of worms isn't it with leadership to be liked but we, we offer certainties in order to a build trust um, and be liked in in that we are um, um, you know trusted through through being liked mm. so there, there's a whole psychology of why why people um, meet uncertainty by by manufacturing certainty yeah. I think there's there's a there's a whole new thing of being honest about uncertainty but being honest my thinking at the moment is that you've got to turn that into a positive and the positive is, is an opportunity to learn mm. and this is where we come back to the COVID-19 situation it's a it's 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 a it's a huge change so we have to learn we either have to learn to do things very differently or adapt our mindset to be different or adapt our values to be different or something but it is an opportunity for change and learning yeah so you you you, you know it's um it is it is huge and that in itself creates more uncertainty doesn't it because as soon as you create more change and there's more learning there's more uncertainty because there's you're moving towards information and knowledge that you don't yet have. Yes, uh, no easy answers. I mean, um, it, it, for people like you and I who work with teams who want to be told things, we've, we're under pressure to be certain because they're expected of us. All we can do is say, look, um, you know, here, here, this, is, this is the way it is. Um, people respect you for doing this. Uh, it's, you have the power to be the person you want to be uh, don't try and be somebody else and all this kind of stuff mm. um, there are no easy answers but I think it's for me it is instead of uncertainty being a roadblock uh, 
it's an opening of the gates into a new world it's it's the it's the it's the um uh it's the invitation to learn mm. and i think there's a terrible danger with senior management that i haven't got time to learn i'm too busy doing mm -hmm. you know um i'm too busy managing i'm too busy managing i'm too busy doing this uh it, you know, I'm, I'm too busy to even think about the future. The future doesn't affect me. You know, I've got to pay people this week. I've got to pay some bills this month. You know, I can't be bothered with five years time. I've got to, I've got to do things now. I've got to get the bank off my back or whatever. Um, and this should be an opportunity to start thinking more strategically. Um, you know, with my st strategy consultant hat on, I think boards don't spend enough time. They have probably have two or three days a year when they go away for an away day or, a, you know, supposedly to think about strategic things but just to get out of the office uh, and very few of them have a independent third party facilitator on the day i might say as i'm sure you know um, so a lot of it is just a relaxation jolly which is good emotionally but it doesn't harness their minds thinking about the future well, and also, if you're, if you're going to start thinking about the future, you need to really step into the unknown, don't you? Of course. And what, and what we tend to do is we define the future based on what's known. Exactly. Rather than what's unknown. So, you know, what I'm hearing here is there's an opportunity to, to really broaden the thinking around what, what might it look like in the future and what might we want to create so that we're actually at the forefront of creating and the future that we want it to be rather than on the back foot of responding to what's just suddenly happening. I mean, the, the webinar I've just been listening to about scenario planning. I mean, I did a document on from scenario planning about a month ago. Um, and I think the important thing with, if you have four alternative scenarios, one is the ideal and one is the worst case usually. And there's two others. It's like any matrix almost, you know, there's two others that are a bit good, bit bad, you know, whatever. Um, once you've done the exercise, you say, okay, what do we have to do to get to the good place? And what do we have to do to avoid going to the bad place? Mm. Um, and sort of take it from there and, 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 and take the menu of, you know, what do we have to do to make sure we don't get lots of Victor Orbans all over the place, you know, shutting down democracy, mm. uh, you know, or what do we have to do to make sure that there is more cooperation globally or whatever it is? You know, what, what steps do we need to take to be in the good place? Yeah. So it's not that the, 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 the best case scenario or the nice scenario or, or, the, or, the, um, or, or, the, or the good, good place. Lovely expression out of the good place. The good place. Um, not that you get to the good place, but that you understand... Um, the, the attributes of it and how you get to how you how you build to it mm. um, but i think that's the learning opportunity um, for a lot of organizations especially prior to this we saw businesses struggling with esg uh, environmental and social governance determinants much as they had done 10 15 years ago with csr uh, you know this whole thing of who are we in business for what's yeah. the purpose of our business mm -hmm. um, i think that's quite important i mean again Unfortunately, the governance compliance world is driven by people saying you must do this, that and the other. And there's this big debate of are we in business to satisfy the shareholders or wider society or you know, what, what is our purpose in business? So I think for a lot of organizations, the scenario thing is about 
what are we here to do? Mm. Um, and I think that's, a, if nothing else, it allows that kind of conversation to take place. Uh, yeah. And I think it's a wake up call because those don't get properly asked. So what would your what would your advice be to to boards and any board members who are listening? What you know, in a year's time, what what can we learn from where we're at now? What would your advice be to them? My advice is um, stop treating risk as a compliance function and actually treat it as a uh, as part of the future um, because you can't be right. You can't be wrong. I mean, there are only two potential. <coughs> risk forecast lucky and wrong you know <laughs> so you've got it you've got to actually think how risk and strategy go together uh and spend a bit more time thinking about desirable futures um uh, what what you would want to be and where you can be what's stopping you getting there is it is it culture um, and that's a big, big question for a lot of organisations. Is it is it to do with uh, the way we recruit and reward people, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera? <coughs> so what's what's stopping us getting to where we want to be? And and how do we measure good? Mm. Is good based on bottom line? Is it based on staff turnover? Uh, is it based on market share? What's it What's it based on? What's good based on? Big things like that. Um, the sort of questions that a lot of boards say, oh, we haven't got time for that. But the NEDs ought to be doing that. It ought to be being lobbied. Yeah, and it's interesting, isn't it? Because they are such big questions that, you know, a day out of the office to explore that is just doesn't even cut it, does it? It's, no. They're, they're such big questions. So, you know, I can understand why it's so so challenging when there's always something more pressing to <laughs> be doing. Um, so how how do you raise the profile for boards? you know to make this um more important i think it's carrot and stick the, the, the stick is um when you look at the figures at the moment that you know the gdp in this country is going to be 35 percent down in the second quarter uh, we've got 25 percent of businesses just gone bust in a quarter <coughs> um two million people signing off universal credit you know, there is going to be such a seismic shift in this country mm how we work and what we do um, you know forget scenarios about great depression um, there are going to be a lot of people out there who are quite capable of working uh, a lot younger than me um, and who would like to work and are not going to be able to now if you think back to the Victorian days when you had people like um, Cadbury uh, building Bourneville and Lever building Port Sunlight Mm. Uh, these were philanthropists who decided that because of cholera and because of disease their workers needed healthy environments to work in mm. and you know healthy happy families make good workers and all that kind of thing mm. <coughs> where are our philanthropists today yeah. i mean there's talk of bill gates being one i don't know whether he really is one or not but he well i think we haven't got many no the philanthropists today tend to be people who've become billionaires and then don't know what to do. With, I mean, this is my cynical view, but they, they don't know what to do with their money then. So then they become philanthropists. But the true philanthropy um, meaning of the word was that, you know, was the people like Cadbury's where it was, they did it as part of the process of how they ran their business. Mm. And so, I think we need that. We need that. And uh, although we haven't got, 
you know, if this was the Victorian days, they'd be saying, right, okay, two million unemployed people, well, well they can go and dig the HS2 tracks or something, or <laughs> go and pick all the vegetables because the Romanians can't come over and do it or whatever. They'd give them a manual job, but it's, it's not like that. There are a lot of very, very well-skilled people, mm. especially in hospitality and retail and areas that are, that are not going to come back quickly. Mm. Um, I was reading a thing yesterday about all these poor people in London, who, all these foreign workers who've just been turfed out onto the street mm. um, because their bars and pubs and restaurants have been shut. There's some big things that have got to be solved quickly. Yeah, uh, We do need philanthropy. Uh, we do need uh, more than st just state support. We need people to actually step in and, and create work. And I don't know where that's going to come from. Uh, I don't. I don't want to sound too worried, but I, I don't have any easy answers on that. Well, I my my hint, hunch is Gary that you're going to be extremely busy because I think the uncertainty that you know is just beginning, um, and you know at the moment I'm having so many conversations and running masterclasses and team coaching sessions around the fact that we're in it, um, but I think you know there's there's almost this sense of once the lockdown restrictions are eased we'll go back to normal and then the uncertainty will end. But I think we've got a mammoth amount of uncertainty that's going to be with us for, for years to come. And that's even without all of the AI and technological debates thrown in that was generating that anyway. So my hunch is you're going to be extremely busy for, for years to come. So um, final, your final thoughts on uncertainty. What do you want boards to know that, that you don't think that they know or that they're not paying attention to? I think I think that they don't take their eyes up off the paper and look forward. Um, I think the problem with board meetings and the structure of governance at the moment is they're not frequent enough. Uh, the company secretary sends around the minutes in advance. They read things. They have the questions. They come for a half a day or a day and they go off somewhere else. And a lot of NEDs have spread themselves too thinly and don't actually get to grips with the business. Mm. Um, the kind of people who do their due diligence these days on business is the active interest investors who take a share and then go in and say, right, I think we can improve this. I think we need to change the CEO, we need to change the FD, we need to uh, shuffle things up a bit because there's a lot of uh, shareholder value not being released. Um, and I think there's a lot of fat still lying around. Uh, I think businesses will have to get leaner uh, but I think the whole corporate uh, governance piece uh, has become a little bit bureaucratic. I have a conversation with a few people who say that rechanging the Financial Reporting Council into this ARGA or IARGO, whatever it is later in the year, and making it much more of a rules-based system is, is going the wrong way. Mm. Um, I, 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 I have issues about the way corporate governance is going because at the end of the day, Businesses are there to, to support the economy yeah. and our economy has been very dependent on financial services uh, and, and has we have no real industry, you know, like Germany or somewhere. So we haven't got a balanced economy uh, and we haven't got people really being philanthropists and, and prepared to pick up the, the slack where the, where the social need is. Um, I would like to see, see businesses taking more of the view of how do we serve the wider society as opposed mm. to just the shareholders? Yeah. Um, and how can we do some good in that area? 
um, without just turning around and saying, can we be a charity and have tax relief? <laughs> yeah. Lots of big questions there that are going to generate more uncertainty. So, um, Gary, thank you so much for your time. It's been really fascinating to talk to you. Thank you very much. I hope, it's, I hope your listeners uh, find it useful. Anyway, thank you. I was fascinated to understand more from Gary about the mechanics of uncertainty in relation to how organisations can handle it as part of strategy. There's a tendency to believe we can nail down the answers to everything, and of course we can't. However, what I'm learning from Gary is that there is much more that organisations can do to mitigate and prepare for uncertainty that will ease the pain of handling it when it does arise. Definitely food for thought. What's your experience of uncertainty? How might future planning prepare you better? So that's it for this week. Come back soon and hear some further insights from other people that I interview. And in future, I'll also be sharing some of my insights as well. I was your host, Jude Jennison from Leaders by Nature, author of the book, Leading Through Uncertainty. And if you want to find out more, you can find me on www.judejennison.com. <music>